brothers here in church told me a few months ago that he laughs at my jokes it's because he doesn't make out most of what I say anyway. <laughs> so he just laughs. So what I'm going to tell you today is you do the same thing. <laughs> so whether it makes sense or you don't hear, just la- smile and just laugh about it. So, okay? <laughs> Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas to those who are watching online. Christmas for most of us evokes happiness. The happiness of anticipation. The unwrapping of gifts from loved ones. Ella and I have graduated from giving gifts to our children. Our focus now is grandchildren, nephews, and nieces. But nothing beats the hugs and joy on their faces as they unwrapped their gifts. My grandson Joshua, Isaiah, he comes here with me to church sometimes. He gives the best hugs. He squeezes tight and then he rolls me on my shoulder and pass my back as if to say, it's okay, papi, it's okay. That is my out of this world happiness. For some of us, happiness is an evening of hand-in-hand walk around the neighborhood or the park with the one we love, whispering some sweet nothings into each other's ears. Happiness for some is being surprised on birthdays or vacationing in a tropical island. Every one of us wants to be happy. And so we pursue happiness with everything we have. To be happy, we spend lots of money. We collect collectibles. And we search endlessly for new experiences. Beloved, if happiness depends on our circumstances, as it appears to be, the question we must ask and answer are this. What happens when the toys we treasure rust and the ones we love die? What happens when our health takes a plunge? What happens when the sums of money is hacked from our savings account? And yes, what happens to happiness when the party is over and lights dim? We know what happens. For very often, happiness disappears and despair shows up. Happiness evaporates quickly with changes in our circumstances because happiness is never permanent. But happiness is unlike joy. Joy does not flee from us. It runs deeper and stronger as we experience life. Joy is the quiet, confident assurance of God's love and work in our life. The assurance that our God will be with us no matter the circumstances or situations. Beloved, realize that our happiness depends on happiness, but our joy depends on Christ. Since we celebrated the birth of our Lord Jesus yesterday, let us today talk about how we can pattern our Christian life after the humility of Christ. 
so that we can be united in him and experience the joy of relationships. My message today is from the book of Philippians, written by Apostle Paul while he was in prison to the people of Philippi as a personal expression of his love and affection. Philippians is the book of joy simply because it speaks to the real joy of Christian living. The secret to our joy as believers is grounded in our relationship with Christ. We are to be joyful in all circumstances. Joyfulness is not seasonal. The word of God says that we are to be joyful even when things are going badly. Even when we feel like complaining. And even when no one else is joyful. For Christ still reigns. And we know him. So we can always rejoice. In our passage of today, Apostle Paul gives us a model of a joyful and successful Christian living. He tells us that we can become mature Christians by being identified with Christ. So much so that his attitude of humility and self-sacrifice define us. This means that developing our character as believers begins with God's work in us. But remember, Christian growth requires self-discipline. Self-sacrifice, obedience to God's word, and absolute focus on Christ. So, let us read Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, hope, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have the mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Beloved, yesterday we celebrated the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But today, Apostle Paul is exhorting us as believers to unite and to love one another. God's heart is for us to love in unity, to be in one mind. Look at what Paul says at the beginning of this passage. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort of love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is not doubting that these qualities exist in us as believers. No. Instead, he's making a bold declaration of what is already present in us as children of the living God. And so he declares, if you have experienced the least amount of Christ's goodness in your life, and if your acceptance of Christ into your, love, into your life has made any difference in you, then express it in the way you do relationships with those around you by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Notice that when Paul calls on believers to unite, he's not calling on Catholics, Presbyterians, Baptists, the Anglicans, and other church denominations to unite as one big organization. No, 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 no. He's not, he's not saying that. He's, he's calling for unity of spirit. As believers, we gave our life to Christ because of what he did for us on the cross. Through his death and resurrection, we became adopted into the family of the living God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of age, countries of origin, generations or background. We are the children of the living God, the siblings of Christ. That is our identity as believers. So since we all belong to one family, do we treat each other as a family? Are we united as a family? These are the questions Paul is asking us to consider in the beginning and throughout this passage. He is challenging us, believers in Christ, to unite as one family of God. For Paul believes unity of mind and spirit is of primary importance. That's why he addresses unity of believers in all his books in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, we struggle with unity. And going from divided to united is a tall order for us and a major undertaking. Our Lord Jesus knows this, and that is why he encourages us by his words and prayers in the Gospels. Apostle Paul recognizes our difficulty with unity. That's why he gives us the ingredients necessary for believers to unite in verses 3 and 4 of this passage. So let's read. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So what specifically are the most do things for believers to, to live in unity? Paul says three things. First, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Second, with humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourselves. Finally, he says, do not merely look for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Selfish ambition 
pride or empty conceit is the inability to see beyond ourselves. It is when what me, myself, and us want matters the most. It was selfish ambition and vain glory that got Satan kicked out of heaven. Listen to how Isaiah puts it. You said in your heart, he's describing Satan, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the highest of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to show to the far reaches of the pit. Did you notice in Satan's plan that everything is I this, I that, I will do this, I will do that, I, I, I will make myself. This is absolute pride and empty conceit. So what happened to Satan? He was cast out to the deepest parts of hell. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. And we are told in James 4, 6 that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Is it not amazing, brothers and sisters, that why Satan was so full of himself and was all by his personal interest, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, left his throne in heaven, lowered himself down to the earth in humility and sacrificial love for us. Now, let's go back to Paul's formula for believers' unity. My thinking is that what Paul is asking us to do appears to be counterculture. That is why unity is so hard for us, and we constantly as believers struggle with it. Beginning from the day we are born, we come into this world believing that we are the center of the universe. As babies... We demand attention and refuse to share toys because everything we see is mine. As we age, the society demands that we compete to succeed. No matter the number of toes we step on or the shoulders we climb to become successful and reach our life goals. We are made to believe that selfish ambition is the key to success. We are socialized to always look out for the number one. Very often than not, each ladder we climbed towards success is tainted with heavy doses of selfishness and conceit. In our society of today, humility is often seen as weakness, but aggressiveness is adored. You cannot get too far up the ladder of success if you regard others as more important than yourself. And how far can you go up this ladder when each step taken, you are considering the interests of others and less of your own? How far can you go? So for us in this society, selfish ambition is a natural ingredient to survival and advancement in life. Whether individually or at the corporate level. Take me for instance. I am very impatient. Anytime I'm behind cars, that are driving slow in a fast lane. So what do I do? I take them to get them off the lane. 
meant for drivers like me. Meanwhile, I'm fidgeting, I'm mumbling to myself. Oh, move it. Slow more. Get on. Let, get, get out of my way. Move out. Get going. Get out of the way so I can get to where I'm going. I leave little room for anyone to come between me and the car ahead of me. Every time I'm on the highway during rush hour, I'm always on the lookout for drivers like me so I can join their group. <laughs> because I feel where I'm going is more important than wherever uh, any person else is heading. That's me. And right now I'm blushing, but you can see it. <laughs> what about you, brothers and sisters? In what ways are you selfish? Is it by refusing to help someone you know is in need? Is it, that, is it when you refuse to share your space at work? Or is it by putting up high, solid fences between you and your neighbors? In our selfishness, we tend to forget that there are people like us in these situations, in those workspaces, inside those cars, and in those homes behind the fences. Beloved, the ingredients for unity through selfless living that Paul is calling us to requires supernatural living. We cannot live in the natural and live a selfless life. As believers, we must be living in the spirit to be able to answer the call of Paul and Christ. For when we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit took residence in us. Jesus tells us that the most important laws governing our lives as believers are we love our God, our, our Lord, our God with all our heart, with all our souls, and with all our minds. And we must love our neighbor as ourselves. That is a call for vertical and lateral relationships. And Paul's ingredients for unity and selflessness emphasize these laws of God. For living a life of unity and selflessness identifies us with Christ and provides us the joy of loving one another. Beloved, love is the foundation of believers' call to unity. And love is the base for our unity. I'm going to repeat that. Love is the foundation of believers' call to unity. And love is the base for our unity. Isaiah says in, sorry, Jesus says in John 13, 34, 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Loving one another is so important to our Savior that he made it a commandment for us. For it is the love for others that separates us from the rest of the crowd. And the love for one another is our badge as the disciples of Christ. Paul says the same thing. That love for others unites us as believers. 
He calls on you and me to keep our minds on Christ's example of humility and sacrificial love. If our lives are to be joyful and live for God. Paul wants us to love as Christ did. Selfless. Now, this is the big question for all of you. How do we disciples of Christ live selflessly? And how do we meet Christ and Paul's expectation of selfless living? The answer Paul gives us is the model of, the model of Christ's love. He says in verses 5 through 8, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Apostle Paul urges us to, to grow in humility and to make Jesus our role model. To do so, we must acknowledge the journey Jesus took from his throne in heaven to the cross at Calvary. There is no greater demonstration of humility and selflessness. Brothers and sisters, verses 5 through 8 maps the journey of Jesus from heaven to earth. From God to man. From the throne to the cross. He released the rights and privileges that belonged to him, laying them aside instead of clinging to them. Jesus had it all, but he laid it aside for you and me. There was no hint of self-interest. There was no hint of self-interest in all that he did. Going to the cross to be humiliated and disgraced was not to meet his own personal wants and needs, but simply for you and me. So that his pain was exchanged for our gain. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Rejected so that we could be accepted. Made himself Nothing so that we could be something. Died so we could live. The plan all along was that by trusting in Christ and what he did for us on the cross, we could find forgiveness and be made right with God. Wow. Beloved, I have two questions for you, and I'm going to go a little bit Pentecost on you this morning, okay? So when I ask this question, if you believe, say amen. And I want it very loud because you guys are too quiet. Are you ready? Yes. Have you received the forgiveness Jesus won on the cross? Amen. Well, come on now. You just had coffee. Come on. It has to be louder than that. <laughs> Let's do it again. Have you received the forgiveness Jesus won on the cross? Amen. Do you trust that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for you? Amen. Thank you. We are called to have the mindset of, or, or the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. 
These verses tell us that we must pattern our lives after Christ. And we are told to adopt two key elements into our lives. First, we must be Christ-like by making ourselves nothing. Our scriptural reading says that Jesus made himself nothing. Some Bible translations say he emptied himself. The question is, what did Jesus empty himself of? He emptied himself of his deity to become a man. Meaning, he voluntarily renounces his power. He willingly accepts the conditions of human life. He carried his utter obedience to God the Father. Even to the point of shameful death on the cross. So how does this apply to you and me? What must we empty ourselves of? The self. That is our biggest problem as believers, the self. If we are to live, love others, we, the body of Christ, must start by emptying ourselves of the self. We must start considering the needs of others around us. Jesus, we are told, not only emptied himself of his deity, but he also took the form of a servant. The implication for us is that we must be willing to serve wherever and however the Lord calls on us to serve and to love others. But you and I know that expressing real love to another person is not an easy task. We know that. It is a difficult thing to do. And it is usually very inconvenient and counterintuitive. We are also most often called to love when we are dealing with our own difficult issues in our lives, especially during our own pity parties. These are the times God calls on us to empty ourselves to serve others. The times you and I are usually not willing to serve because it is most inconvenient to do so. That's when the Spirit calls on you to give up your seat to a pregnant woman in a crowded bus or train. That's when, even if you are in a rush to get somewhere, you stop to help a driver stuck in snow. That's when on a Saturday morning with a pile of things to do, the Spirit lays on your heart to help a widow mow her overgrown lawn. That's when you stop to place your own good towel over the window of a stranger's car accidentally left open during snow or rain. Beloved, doing things when they are inconvenient is or even counterintuitive is sacrificial. But imagine when someone you know or never met or never will is expecting the worst, but you had the opportunity to make it better. And you did. Can you then even begin to imagine how you have affected their life by your action of selflessness? Matured Christians hunt for opportunities to serve. They do not see inconvenience. They only see opportunities. 
to serve others, to glorify Jesus, and to advance his kingdom. And they see the joy to serve others as their reward. For mature Christians, the secret to enduring joy is grounded in their relationship with Christ. Verse 8 of our passage says, And when found in human form, Christ humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. Death itself is horrific enough. But death on the cross is so far worse at many levels. The criminal is hung by nails driven through his wrists. The knees are bent to keep him from supporting his body weight on, the, on his feet. The feet, the feet are nailed with one foot placed on the other to a small ledge. With very little support, the person hung on the cross must have to lift his whole body with great effort. Each time he breathes. Eventually, the whole body aches with extreme pain and exhaustion and he suffocates. This, at the very least, is what our Savior went through for us. Jesus, our Savior, the one that knew no sin, was treated as a criminal. He was mercilessly beaten. His skin was ripped apart. He was stoned, stripped, humiliated, and he was hung on the cross to die. Christ submitted to this treatment because of his love for us. What else could he have done for us that was not done? He did it all. And this is the ultimate example of selfless love. Beloved, which other God did that for his people? Which other God? Is it Baal? Buddha? The Roman God? Is it the Greek God? The Muslim God? Which one? Which of them and the many other gods people worship today did what Christ did for us? Just think about that. Christ's death on the cross is to help you and I understand what we have been called to. And the reason the Bible frequently reminds us about being one and to love one another. Even to a place of vulnerability. Even to a place of inconvenience. And yes, even to the point of getting hurt. But beloved, realize that none of this can happen naturally by our own strength. This means that if you and I are operating worldly or in our natural life, we are never ever going to put ourselves out there for anyone. We are never going to seek opportunities to serve. The kind of life we are called to only comes supernaturally. By supernaturally, I mean life in the spirit and through the Holy Spirit living in us, operating in us, and through us. Look, if I, as a believer, I decide to live in the natural, I am going to constantly hold back love. I am going to be living for me and living according to the rules of this world. I am going to be doing what is good for me. I am going to be doing what gets me ahead. 
But that's not what this passage is calling us to, is it? And that is not the model of Christ. That is not where real joy exists. So it comes down to a choice that you and I must make. We must decide on which ladder to climb. The ladder of pride, which is the self, or the ladder of humility, which is of Christ. We either live a life where we are only taking care of ourselves and holding on to the things that we have and are ours, or a life where, they're, 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 where we are not willing to go beyond our natural inclinations, or we can choose the supernatural spirit-filled life that made Paul to urge believers like you and I not to conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Beloved, spirit-filled life is only possible to those who are completely broken and surrendered to the will of God. The self dominates our life if we are not broken or yielded to the, to the Holy Spirit. We become so full of the self that the spirit of Christ in us is always struggling to come out and be expressed in our lives. Therefore, we must do what Jesus did, empty ourselves of the self. Just remember, that can only happen through the help and work of the Holy Spirit. For it is never by my might, nor by power, but from an outpouring of God's spirit. Christmas is the beginning of the greatest story ever told. And Christmas also points to the end of that story. For the baby in the manger grew up to, the, to be the man who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What was that joy before him? It is you and me. It is Jesus saying, I'd rather die, suffer the shame, and die to save us. Christ died on the cross that we might live. He didn't suffer and die so that we can just walk off in our own selfish ways. He did it so that we can be united in his spirit and follow his path to live our lives as a united family of God. That's the kind of life you and I have been called to. A life of self-denial. A life of service. A life of giving our lives to others. And Jesus is here today, my brothers and sisters. Why is he here? To encourage you and I. To comfort those who need comfort. To fill you and me with spiritual nourishment. To bless your life. And to strengthen us. Jesus is here today with his outer garment wrapped around his waist, willing to get down on his knees to save you and I. He wants to impress upon us that we are called to do the same, to serve one another, united in selfless love. But overall, how did Father God respond to Jesus. Listen to verses 9 
to 11 of our passage. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus humbled himself, God exalted him. Because Jesus refused to make a name for himself, God gave him a name that is above every other name. And because Jesus was willing to bend his knees in service, what did Father God do? He decreed that every knee in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth, must bow before Jesus Christ. And every tongue confessing as Lord. These verses also tell us that God's response to his son Jesus extends to us. If we live sacrificially and selflessly, that is our part to glory. Beloved, there is something extraordinary about unity and love. It is supernatural. It is spiritual. It is the evidence of God in our midst. And it is God doing things amazing in the community of faith. Unity or love for one another never happens automatically. It comes through the intentional, ongoing pouring out of what God has poured into us. But it is good and we all need it. Beloved, can you imagine having a mindset of Christian unity in our marriages? Friendship? and other family relationships where we put Jesus squarely at the center and we make it our goal to seek and to draw closer to him? Can you imagine what would happen if we had the mindset of cultivating that community right here at Lakeview? Can you imagine what just might happen if people experience the model of Christ's love when they walk in here on Sunday mornings, people from different places, generations, and backgrounds, but all of the same mind, honoring and worshiping Jesus, doing kingdom work, able to walk through our differences and have a united home. Think about how wonderful that would be. We are people who need to experience the kind of unity and community that Paul and Christ want us to become. That's the supernatural community of the church. And the potential is here at Lakeview for us to experience it. It takes an attitude of purposefulness with a commitment to deliberate action. And there is something for each of us to do to achieve the life of unity, the law for one another that we are called to by Paul and Christ. Praise God that at Lakeview, we experience some of that unity and love. But we must continue to intentionally cultivate that life of unity and selfless love for each other. It is precious. And we must never, ever take it for granted. Okay, just in case you are wondering what kind of a driver I am these days, a selfless and compassionate one who prays to the Lord each day for travel mercies. 
and the strength to endure my many temptations. Driving has become a ministry of thanksgiving for me. Every slow driver God puts in front of me is an answer to my daily prayer for travel mercies. And at each time, I say to the Lord, thank you. But you know what? I get to my destinations relaxed and on time. Let us pray. 